So this week, we're going to continue on in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at now another trial that he went through. Last week was the temptations. This week is rejection. Rejection in his home. Um, and we're going to be looking at the events that took place here and also how Jesus handled it. Um, and I think that what we're going to learn here is what Jesus can teach us about handling rejection, handling it when everyone around us seems to be against us and nothing seems to be there's nothing we can say or do to change their minds, to change people's perspectives. So let's open up the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for this day. Thank you for those who are here and attending. Thank you for those that will be watching, will be listening to this message, Lord. I pray that you will speak powerfully to them through this message, Lord. I pray that you will pour your Holy Spirit upon them so that they just will be filled, Lord. Be with us now as we get into your word, as we get into this study that you led me to prepare. I love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And the word of God says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling, the, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Uh, fixed on him, sorry. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. Biblical scholars have said that between verses 13 and 14, there's a gap of about a year and a half and the events recorded in John chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 4, verse 45, took place at this time. Now, it's unknown whether Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's unknown why Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't record them. But it seems likely that their intent was to move right into the Lord's ministry in Galilee. Luke, however, is the only one to report this particular visit to his hometown of Nazareth. So, 
By the time Jesus returned to Galilee to begin the second year of his public ministry, we're told that he did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And also, news about the, the miracle worker from Nazareth had spread throughout the entire vicinity. Just to give you an idea of how well-known he had become, according to figures from the historian and former governor of that area, Josephus, he recorded that there were 240 villages and cities that may have held up to 15,000 people each. That's about 3.6 million people in the area of Galilee, in the region of Galilee. And the best way to compare it is that it's a little lower than the population of L.A. today. And there, while he was there, he dedicated himself to teaching in the synagogues, in the synagogues. He found wide acceptance. People thronged to, see, to hear him. He was the popular hero at that time. He was the it factor in that region. And as of yet, he had no organized opposition. But then it was time to go home. Now, there's a couple things that I want to point out in these two verses that are important to consider. First of all, we're told that our Lord ministered in the power of the Spirit. The Greek word for power is dunamis, and is where we get our Greek word dynamite. This means that everything Jesus did, he did by the strength that was given to him by the Holy Spirit. Well, as a believer, this same dynamis power gives you the inner strength to live in his service, the power to be his witnesses, and the power to enable you to serve in the ministry. Trying to do these things on our own strength and abilities will almost certainly result in failure frustration, and disappointment. Secondly, I think it's important to point out that Jesus regularly attended and taught at the local synagogues. If it, it was his custom to be in the synagogue, shouldn't it be ours as well? Oh, I can worship God comfortably at home, some say. Or, there's just a few people at my church. I get more inspired when I'm listening to the Bible on my phone, on my tablet on Sundays, having a cup of coffee, or taking a long walk. That's my church. That's my fellowship. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you think the synagogues Jesus attended were places where there was a movement of the Spirit? Do you think all of them were packed and entertaining? I don't. Do you think Jesus received his wisdom from the religious teachings of all those rabbis? I don't. Yet, it was his custom to attend anyways. 
So why did he go to their synagogues Sabbath after Sabbath? He went simply to be in the midst, midst of the church. And his presence in our midst should be much more than enough of a reason to come together corporately and to meet together consistently. So when he arrived there in Nazareth, as he normally did, as we just saw, since, since he was born, Jesus made his way to the place of prayer on the Sabbath day. Now, a typical synagogue service opened up with an invocation for God's blessing and then a recitation of the traditional Hebrew confession of faith known, known as the Shema. This was followed by prayer and the prescribed readings from the law and from the prophets, a sermon, and a final priestly blessing. Now, on this particular Sabbath, Jesus was given the honor of reading the scripture and then preaching from it. When the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, the Lord stood up, unrolled, unrolled it to a portion of what we now know as Isaiah 60, 61 and read from verse 1 and from the first half of verse 2. Now the Jewish teachers there had always interpreted this passage as a description of the ministry of the Messiah. And those, the other people in that synagogue also knew it. They, 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 it was a well-known fact what Isaiah 61 was about, the first two verses. See, the person speaking here in, in, the, in the verses of our passage is the Messiah, the Christ, empowered and anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. His purpose was to deal with five-fold problems that have affected mankind since sin entered the world. Poverty. To preach the good news to the poor. Sorrow. To heal the brokenhearted. Bondage to proclaim the release of the captives, suffering, and recovery of the sight of the blind. And the fifth problem that has afflicted mankind since sin entered the world is oppression. To set free the oppressed. So in short, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what I want us to do is look at again, look at these again through a spiritual perspective. The spiritually poor would be the unwanted, the undesirables, the outcast, and the people that society just wants to forget about. These are the people that Jesus would reach out by telling them, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. The spiritually brokenhearted 
are those who understand their sinful condition and are just overcome with a deep sense of grief and helplessness. These are the ones that Jesus would come. He would come to lovingly, tenderly, and specifically. The spiritually captive are those who have often been told, I've told you what to do once. I've told you how to be free twice. Why are you still in bondage to that habit, that person, that substance? These are the people Jesus came to and release from that imprisonment. The spiritually blind are those who have difficulty seeing things through a spiritual perspective. These are the ones Jesus would come and give them a fresh vision. The spiritually oppressed are those who are in bondage by demons and disease. These are the ones Jesus came to reach and free them from that oppression. Thus, the Messiah would present himself as the answer to all physical and spiritual issues that have troubled us since, again, since sin entered the world. Now, after he reads the text, Luke does a great job describing the tension of the scene in verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back, sat down, and while all eyes were fixed on him, he began to say to them, Today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. Although he didn't say it outright, he was implying that he was the one who would fulfill this passage. This was his way of telling everyone there that he was the Messiah of Israel. Now, it's also important to point out the significance of why he stopped after reading the words to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As I mentioned he only read the first half of, verse, of Isaiah 61, verse 2. He left out the second half, which said, And the day of our God's judgment to comfort all who born. Now, the purpose of the Messiah's first coming was to fulfill the first part of that verse. And as of today, right now, this is the age of grace that we currently live under. Now, when he returns the second time, it will be to fulfill the second part of that verse. You see, had he read that entire verse, he wouldn't have been able to say at that moment that the scripture had been fulfilled. Well, it appears that at first, those who heard him were impressed. Since it says in verse 22 that they spoke well of him and were amazed by his gracious words that he said. 
However, it didn't take long for that amazement to turn into skepticism. They couldn't understand how Joseph's son, the boy they had watched grow up, could speak with such grace and claim to be the Messiah. Now, this is something that I've been guilty of doing, and maybe you can relate to this. I often make the mistake of meeting someone or getting to know someone and thinking that I've got them all figured out, only to later discover that due to my failure for not getting or knowing all the information, I painted a picture in my mind of that person that was completely wrong. Now, to be sure you understand me, let me give you an example. Many of you are probably, are, you're probably familiar with the game show Wheel of Fortune. Well, without getting into all the rules, all the details of the game, I'll just say this. What I was doing was just looking at a few vowels and consonants on that board and automatically assuming that I knew what the answer was. But it wasn't until all the letters were revealed that I could clearly see that the phrase was completely different than what I was convinced it was. There are many people out there who think they've got Jesus figured out because they've read a book, they've clicked on to Wikipedia and entered Jesus, or have watched a History Channel biography on him. But what they don't understand is they don't have a complete picture of Jesus because they haven't seen him throughout the entire Bible. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. So let me challenge you next time you open up the Old Testament, for instance, and maybe for your morning devotionals or your, your, one of your studies, personal studies, when you do open up to the Old Testament and choose whatever book you want to read or study, see if you can find Jesus there. See if you can find him there. Because he's there in those stories. You just have to carefully look for him. Well, as we move on to the rest of our passage this morning, we're going to see how their skepticism of Jesus turned into antagonism and resentment. So let's pick up in verse 23. So actually, I'm going to back up a little bit and read verse 22 again. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've, what we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. 
He also said, Truly, I tell you, no prophet, is, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widow, widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, they were, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. The Lord knew the people's hearts, and he knew their minds, and he knew that there wasn't a real appreciation of his true identity or worth. To the man who heard him in the synagogue that day, and to many others, he was just one of their hometown boys who was riding his 15 minutes of fame. He was aware that their admiration was shallow. He anticipated that they'd quote a well-known proverb to him. Doctor, heal yourself. Now, ordinarily, this proverb would mean, do for yourself what you have done for others. Cure your own condition, since you claim to cure others. But you see, he knew they would spin it by saying exactly what was in their hearts. And this is what he essentially told them they they would say or how they would spin it. Do yourself a favor and save yourself from ridicule. Perform a miracle right here, right now, like the one you performed in Capernaum. Show us you're the one who fulfills this passage. You see, Jesus knew what they really wanted. He knew that they really wanted him to prove his claims with a miraculous sign. But he wasn't going to allow himself to be reduced to a local sideshow action. He did things only when they were God's will, leading to God's purpose, in God's glory, and for God's kingdom. So he replied by stating a well-known fact that occurs between the people whom God chooses to use and the social environment they grew up in. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. He then gives them two Old Testament examples where where the prophets of God were not appreciated by the people of Israel and were thus sent to the Gentiles. Jesus' first example 
he cites was from um, 1 Kings chapter 17. During a three and a half year famine in Israel, Elijah sought refuge in the home of a Gentile widow in the town of Zarephath in Sidon. See, God sent him there, even though there were plenty of widows in Israel. The second example was from 2 Kings chapter 7. There the prophet Elisha was sent to the Gentile Naaman, who was captain of the Syrian army. God sent him to cleanse one Gentile, even though there were many in Israel who had leprosy. When Jesus was done explaining and applying this passage, which, by the way, shows us what a sermon looks like, verse 28 tells us that everyone in the synagogue was enraged. In the Greek, the word enraged means that they were filled with passionate anger. So rather than taking the time to objectively think and make sense of what Jesus had just said, to just chew on it and, and, and discuss it and talk about it and maybe ask questions, they quickly reacted subjectively from their feelings. But why? Why were they so angry? Did Jesus insult them? Did he say something blasphemous? No. They were enraged for two reasons. They were infuriated that he wouldn't perform a miracle for him, for them. And they were outraged because he had implied that God also loved the Gentiles. Well, in that state of anger, the mob mentality took over. And they forcefully drove him out of his hometown and brought him to the edge of a cliff, intending to hurl him over it. However, what we see, and this is amazing, without anyone's help, or using his divine powers, or even calling angels down from heaven to rescue him, Jesus simply passed right through the crowd and went on his way. He didn't plead for mercy. He didn't try to reason with them. He didn't fight back or try to run away. He just went right through them and walked away. You see, his quiet yet forceful, self-assured disposition had caused that violent mob to willingly step aside and let him pass. And after the dust settled and the noise, all the noise from the shouts and screams had quieted down, there they were, an empty-handed mob of fools without a victim. So here's what we need to realize. Jesus' rejection at his home didn't require him to resort to desperate measures to win back the crowd. 
his rejection at home sent him elsewhere to continue his mission. This was also a clear indication that his foes, anyone that would come against him to try to kill him, would be powerless to stop him until his mission was complete. But until then, there was just so much more left to do. Now, if you haven't experienced, it yet, experienced this yet, as a Christian who's walking in obedience, who's coming to church, reading your Bible, going to Bible study, you're completely sold out. You just, you don't want to know anything about anything, anything else. You just, your focus is completely on the Lord, on the Lord and, and hearing from Him in His Word and spending time in prayer, worshiping. If that's you and you're walking with the Lord and you have, and you also have the Holy Spirit shining, uh, shining His light in and through you, there will come a time when you will experience some sort of similar rejection. Let me just share three forms that I think you need to be ready for and that we see here in, these pa- in this passage we just read. You can expect unbelievers, unbelievers that, you're, that you've known your entire life, that you've grown up with, maybe friends, family, to antagonize you. They may admire how much you've changed, that you're no longer drinking, that you're no longer watching pornography, that you're no longer, you know, hanging out at the clubs and, or, you know, acting wildly and doing drugs and, and ruining your life with alcohol. They may admire that about you, but they will always, well, they'll look for ways to test the genuineness of your faith. It says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, of course, and I'm reading this, and this is from the NLT. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So, they slander you. Now, my best advice to those of you who are maybe going through it now or will experience it at some point is to recognize. Recognize what they're trying to do. Recognize that they're just trying to trip you up. They're trying to See if, you would, if you're going to act contrary to your faith, contrary to what Jesus has taught us to do. And when you recognize that, you need to guard yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, and again, you, many of you are probably familiar with this verse. It says, Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. 
Be courageous. Be strong. Like you could also expect pushback and rejection from unbelieving friends and family members. You see, you may not be called to lead them to Christ. And that's okay. I think when what a lot of people do is they they come to know the Lord and and they're just so excited, so pumped up, and they're learning new things in the Bible and they're and they don't have any Christian friends and the only people they can share it to are family members and, and close friends and, and then they start seeing that everyone needs to be saved and and in their zeal they start badgering them and, and this is what we see that um, what people will describe as shoving it down their throats you have to be careful of that you just have to be you have to understand that it's not you that's saving them you're just leading them to Christ and Jesus does the saving. And you know why I understand this? I know this is because that's who I was when I first became a Christian. I was living in Northern California. And in the house I was living with, there was just a diverse group of people there. And I was just so excited that of what, what, what was done to me and what the Lord the life that the, the life that the Lord had given me and I was born again and and I was just so excited I just wanted to tell everybody I wanted to let everybody know what I learned and and I wanted to let people know hey look you can be saved too you can you know this is what you've got to do and this is what sin says and and the lifestyle you're living right now the Bible says that you're going to go to hell and well that wasn't the message that they wanted to hear. And whereas at one time they were close friends and we would party and drink and hang out. Now they just didn't want anything to do with me at all. And I was shunned. I was rejected. I was rejected. You know, and, and I felt it. They didn't have to say it. And I was sad. I was sad because I was like, Dude, you go, you're going to hell, and now I don't have any friends. Again, you have to be careful because this is, in your zeal, this may happen. And again, as I said, when you're rejected, it's okay. It's okay because that's, you may not be called to lead those people to Christ, lead family members to Christ. Jesus clearly said in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Keep in mind, just because your testimony is accepted among those closest to you, God can still use it to reach others with it. You see, Here's another amazing thing is that you never know that you never you may never you, you don't know he may use you 
to lead to to lead someone to Christ that has a family member that's been praying about that for a long, long time. Been praying for years for that family member to be saved. And lastly, you can expect to be treated viciously for your faith. I have a book at home. I got it when I was attending uh, online classes for Moody. And I, I can't think of the name right now, but it was a book of all Moody alumni that went out to the missionary field and were killed for their faith, were killed out there in the mission field. And we're talking about missionaries from the late, um, late 19th century and early 20th century. But in some of those stories, these people were treated viciously. They were the most horrible things that you can imagine was done to them. All because they were preaching and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, if Jesus was treated viciously, if Christians throughout, since the church began, were treated viciously, and expect at some time or another in your Christian walk that you too will be treated viciously. I mean, look at our society today. Look at the world we live in today. You can't even wear a hat. You can't even wear a shirt. You can't even wear, you can't even proclaim the truth about, whether it's about the truth about global warming, whether it's the truth about um, what's, going, what's really going on in politics, or, what's, or even the truth about people's hearts, about the condition of a person their brokenness, their sinfulness. We can't truth without the possibility of someone coming up to you and socking you in the face, throwing milkshakes at you, you know, um, attacking you from behind when you're not looking. Just vicious because people don't want to hear the truth. We've seen just within the last few years people coming into churches and shooting them up. Sad. Sad that people would just react this way simply for proclaiming, sharing our faith, for sitting in a church service, in just in a, in a f- group of Christians in a fellowship, worshiping the Lord, that p- people will, will hate that and will do some vile and vicious things 
because they don't like it. Horrible. You see, again, because the Spirit is living in you, you've become a bright light in a dark place. Again, in John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus said this, For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. When you are treated this way, when you find yourself in this situation, or you're about, you can tell something is going to happen, Look to Jesus here in this passage we just read. And when he was betrayed, arrested, beaten, and killed. As an example on how to endure it. The Bible says in James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Expect to be treated bad. Expect to be rejected. Expect for people to just antagonize you, to push your buttons. And if you haven't experienced, if you've been a Christian for a long, long time and you haven't experienced it yet, um, yeah, something going on there. Maybe you're just being too friendly and accommodating towards your unbelieving friends and family members. You're scared of sharing the truth. I don't know. But, again, uh, if, you have, if you've been a Christian for a long time and you have, or you haven't experienced it yet, then it's only a matter of time matter of time before you will, or even if you're a new Christian. It will eventually happen. And, and I'm, I'm not saying this to scare you. For you to question, man, is it really worth it? Well, let me tell you, it is worth it. It is. Because no matter what people do to you, no matter what people say to you, you will always be a child of God. You will always be loved by Him. You will always be in His grace. And even if they were to put you to death, in a moment, you will be present with the Lord. Where there's no more pain, there's no more tears, there's no more dealing with all the mess that is in this world. I'm not saying, again, that you need to look for these things and and try to find these things on your own. No, we don't see that in the Bible. The Bible never says to go look for problems or put yourself in situations where there's going to be problems. No, it's just going to... It'll just happen. But you've got to be ready, and this is what... Jesus is, is showing us here how to handle these situations, how to endure during these times. Last week we saw how Jesus 
refuse the temptation of the devil. This week, we saw how Jesus was able to deal with being rejected in his hometown. In both these cases, he showed us the importance of knowing God's word, trusting, to look out, trusting him to look out for our best interests, and standing strong in the face of adversity. If Jesus could walk away from the devil and from a mob of people who wanted to kill him, so can you. I've seen those hashtags about the walk away movement and, and yeah, it makes sense and all that's good. But there is no better walk away movement than what we see Jesus doing here. And maybe you don't know him personally. Maybe you don't have a relationship with him. Maybe you have known about him. Maybe that's you. You thought you knew him because you watched some documentary on the History Channel. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're, like, you're confused now. You're like, wait, wait a minute. You mean what I read, what I saw? What YouTube taught me was wrong? Let me tell you, yeah. If it's not coming directly from the Word of God, I would question it. I'm not saying everything out there is false information, but if it's not coming directly from the Word of God, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, I would question it. I would seriously question it, and and I would open up the Bible and find out for yourself. But even then, the only way really that God will speak to you through His Word like powerfully is if you have the Holy Spirit in you. And the only way you can have the Holy Spirit in you is by being born again. By having, opening the door to your heart to Jesus and allowing Him to be the ruler and Lord of your heart. Surrendering your life over to Him saying, I'm yours, Lord. Do with me as you will. I want to be your servant. You've spent your entire life serving the world, serving that drug, serving that bottle, serving those pills, serving that computer and the pornography and, and all the other junk. And none of it's worth. Maybe it's time now that you give Jesus the opportunity and surrender to him. So if that's you and you've never accepted Jesus into your heart and, and now you want to have a relationship with him, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that. Wherever you're at, close your eyes, bow your head, and with a sincere heart, pray this. Heavenly Father, thank you.
I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've lived my whole entire life separated from you. And I come before you now and ask for forgiveness. Lord, I come to you now empty, broken-hearted, realizing the magnitude of my sin. I believe with all my heart that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I confess with my mouth that he is Lord. And I believe that he was raised from the dead and is sitting with you now physically at your right hand. So wash me, cleanse me, Lord. Fill me with your, with your spirit so that I may be born again. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. Surround me with people that will help me grow. Help me to find a church that will teach the word of God, Lord. I want to know you. I want to fall more in love with you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.